Hello, I'm Karina Givargasov, the founder of Mission Magazine, the first fashion philanthropic media brand. And welcome to our podcast called My Mission Is. This episode, we caught up with someone we interviewed in our second issue, the environment issue. For this episode, we talk about how an earthquake in Indonesia galvanized this ex-pro surfer onto his own mission, which led him to start in his own charity called Waves for Water. Waste for Water is a filter that gives access to clean drinking water in countries and villages around the world who simply don't have access to such a basic human right. It is now in 44 countries globally. Please tune in and listen as I speak to John Rose, the founder of Waste for Water. Thank you so much. Um, we we're going through all the past features and we put a picture of yours on, I think, on Instagram and you liked it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really want to speak to him. Yeah. I want to kind of understand and where you're at at the moment. I know you've just got back from a trip, but kind of this is my little fun part because when we source things, and I never get to talk to like a view and everyone else in the magazine. And that's the interview bit, I think is the fun and interesting part. I just, I get to hear about you guys, but I don't get to meet and speak to you guys. So I just, I was very um, delighted when you replied back on the Instagram. I said, yes, yeah. you would do the podcast and Kate I know from before so it just seemed yeah, to be exactly I know really, I think the um, first feature happened because she knew you or something so that was cool that's right when she was at an agency before so um yeah no it's great um where have you just got back from uh you've just come back from a trip haven't you I just got back from a just purely personal trip to Alaska wow I was, was that your first time there no no I I um I, I it's kind of a bit of a playground up there for me <laughs> with the things I like to do so i this trip actually was a surf trip. Oh, interesting. So I went up and on this, there's a boat, that, an old fishing vessel that was been converted. The captain likes to surf and he's converted it into like a surf charter boat. Um, really unique. It's called the Milo. And um, it really, because Alaska is not the first place people think of for surfing because it's obviously very cold and, you know, it's, it's just extreme on all levels. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it allows for true pioneering. Like, you know, you can actually go find new waves that no one's ever surfed. You can go, wow. you know, really have that feeling in 2022 that you're, you're still pioneering something. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. And I, I just got back like a few days ago. That must be so, um, Oh, I just had this picture of something very eerie and quiet and you're really in the round nature because you're kind of somewhere that's not, a popular surf spot or a common surf spot to go to put it this way that i didn't see one person or boat the entire trip wow so wow. you're just out it feels like you took a, a time travel capsule to another world or something you know it just it's very the landscape at least where these islands were which is pretty far out on the Aleutian chain um is very similar to like scotland mm -mm. where there's there's no trees on them it's kind of like, the, like the Highlands kind of like very grant, lots of rock and granite. And then like this thick tundra mm -hmm. and a mossy vegetation that grows along the rock. And it, cause it just gets hammered out there with weather. And there's no, there's, there's not a lot of wildlife. There's no bears, threat of bears or anything like that. And so you, you just, it is eerie. It's, but it's also just probably how it was back in the day yeah. in yeah. a lot of places that we know, yeah. you know, where yeah. you're the first person to come up and uh -huh. well, yeah, really cool. God, I could do with just sitting somewhere like that for, for no a service week. too. No service, no Wi-Fi, nothing. Wow. Wow. 
the good old days. Yeah, purely disconnected. Gosh, that must be so incredible for you mentally just to have that at peace and um, just for your soul. I just, that's just, oh my God, I could bloody do with that right now. It is. You know, what's interesting is um, I was trying to think back to the, I mean, I definitely go out of service zone when I'm working in really remote mm. places, but you'd be surprised. Like there's almost service everywhere on the planet now, mm. like mm. even remote jungles of Colombia, like there's, you get to a high peak, you can get to a high peak and it picks service up from somewhere. So I was trying to think back when the last time I really had no service for, a, for an entire like seven, eight days. And I couldn't remember. And I was, it, but it was so interesting how quick I dropped into that. Like it mm -hmm. didn't, I had no withdrawals. I had no nothing. I just mm -hmm. felt like, oh, now I'm actually back to center the way it was before. Did you know going there, there was no service or did you discover it when you got to Alaska? Well, I, I, I thought there'd be maybe something on the boat, like a little, you know, couple hours a day, satellite Wi-Fi thing. And, and, and Hey, maybe he has that, but he doesn't <laughs> he open tell you. just for emergencies, but doesn't open <laughs> up to the guests, which I totally understand. Um, it's a totally different experience when you're not looking at your phone. No one is. Mm -hmm. So it's wow. really, really cool. I mean, I'm sure there's retreats out there that, that, that emulate that same experience and, or, or provide that same experience for people. But I think it's important to do. <laughs> Yes, complete. I totally agree. How did you get, I know that you were a pro surfer before you started Waves for Water. How did yeah. you get into surfing to begin with? Was I got into it because um, I was living in, in Northern California at a, in a little town called Mount Shasta. Um, my dad was a, a carpenter and ski instructor and my mom worked at the local health food store. <laughs> and um, we were just like kind of, you know, tight little family unit, uh, super modest, you know, just kind of hippie family. And, um, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and, and I ended up going with my dad and my dad and I moved from there down to Southern California mm. to a little town to Laguna beach. Um, and he had some friends down there. And so we just lived in this little studio in Laguna and, and, um, he slept on the bed. I slept on the couch in the same room, but but it was only two blocks from the beach. And he, he just sort of said like, look, I don't really have the resources for full-time babysitter. So you get off school at two 30 in the afternoon. I get off work at five 30. So when you get off school, go to the beach and that's your, that's where you're going to hang for those hours. Because he knew there was like this in, in these small beach towns, there's like this kind of club, mm -hmm. <laughs> not a club, an actual club, but it's it, it sort of, like that. It's a, you know, the surfing community is a tight knit. There's everything from, you know, 50 year old surfers to 10 year old surfers all there for the same reason. And they all kind of look out for each other, kind of part of the same tribe. Mm -hmm. And, um, he, he surfed and he, he just knew that like, there'd be people down there to kind of, it's free babysitting basically. Yeah. Yeah. They keep an eye on you and it's safe community. It's a safe community. So he's just like, Oh, it's perfect. Just when I get off work, but just be home when I when I get home from work and then we'll do your homework and then repeat the next day. So I did that. And just naturally from being at the beach at that early age, you know, I started to look up to the older guys and like the surfers and just like, I want to do that. And then just yeah. really took a hold of me. Wow. Fantastic. It's, I'd love to learn to surf. Um, but I'm a bit, I saw Jaws when I was younger, <laughs> bad mistakes. Yeah. It, it kind of made a big impression on, on me. Yeah. 
for the listeners that don't know the story of, um, and I want you to go into more, a bit more um, to talk about it. When you went to Indonesia and you've gone for a surfing trip, and obviously this was the catalyst for you starting Waves for Water. Um, when you were in Indonesia, was there, did you have something else that you were thinking you would do as your next step after coming, going, approaching a retirement and everything? Did you have like a, a little bit of a game plan of what you were going to do, but that all got completely knocked off when you had what happened in Indonesia? Yeah, I did actually. I, I mean, I went through probably a year of just being totally lost, you know, like in that transition period before mm. Indonesia, but after, but as my surf career was waning, um, I felt I was having basically an identity crisis because <laughs> mm. I had only ever been a professional surfer in my professional life. I turned pro out of high school. I just, and all of a sudden it's kind of disappearing and it's just a hard pill to swallow. Mm. You know, you just don't know what your, like what your purpose is. That was your purpose. And then you realize yeah. you're still so young and, but, but a little aimless. And so I thought, Oh, should I work in the surf industry? Should I, I liked photography. I was doing a bit of photography. Um, none of these things I felt super passionate about. I was, I was actually embarking on starting a clothing brand with a good friend. Um, and I was passionate about that, but I, but not in the same way, you know, as mm -hmm. what I, this sort of one track mind feeling that I had when I was mm -hmm. wanting and, and, uh, attempting to be a pro surfer in the beginning, I just, it, it was, it was all encompassing. It was, you know, in every fiber of my being and just so focused. And that's probably why I achieved it. Um, mm -hmm. and I didn't feel that way about the other things, but I did have these kind of, okay, these are the, this is my plan. I'm going to try and go down these, these paths. And, um, and then I, I had the idea for the organization waves for water, um, not as a job, but just as like a pet project. So like, let's say I started the clothing brand. I just wanted to make sure that I was going to go back to Indonesia twice a year, um, selfishly <laughs> to surf. Um, but, but very genuine in its intent to help mm -hmm. as well, but just as like a fun side, yes. side project, like, you know, I've, I love this area. I've been going there for over a decade surfing. I want to be able to help when I'm there. I want to be able to rally a bit of a community and just, just do my part. And so the idea I had, um, again, totally just as a little pet project idea, not to be like a full-time job or anything. And then I went to Indonesia to clear my head and I had the opportunity to go with a friend and, and just kind of try and get back to my center. I was in a male, a marriage that was sort of failing. And, and I just, there was a lot of transition going on. And while I was there before I was able to go to the, the village that I, that I had planned on going to, to implement these 10 water filters, um, for my first effort ever with this idea, wow. um, I was caught in a, in a 7.2 earthquake and, um, that just changed everything. It was just this big divine intervention, so to speak. It was like a giant slap from the universe, like wake up yeah, <laughs> and listen. And, um, you're on the right path, but I'm going to validate it for you so that you see it very, very clearly. And if you don't see this, you're really thick headed. And, um, uh, so I, I obviously saw it. I saw those, that, that, sign or whatever you want to call it. I, I, I felt, I felt the call and became the first responder just sort of because I was there and I had these assets that were very much needed at that time. 
And I implemented those not with any experience whatsoever, but just uh, purely out of common sense. Like I just, I, I was acting off of my own experience in the world, but but more so as a first responder, just just common sense decision-making. <laughs> I, Because I, I'd never done that before. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, but I just clicked into that mode. And um, do you think your training helped with um, that situation at the time? Because I, 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 I know nothing about surfing, so forgive me, but I would imagine that you're on the waters. You've got to be uber sensitive, alert, what's, you know, the waves, the, the motions and all of this, and to kind of kick that into your kind of second nature. When you had this emergency crisis happened, you went into autopilot. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. There was an article written in, in a magazine called Surfer's Journal shortly after I started Waves for Water um, that it, it wasn't just about me, but I was included in it. But it was drawing a parallel with surfers and first responders. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much to your point. Like, I think as a surfer, and, and you can't generalize everyone, obviously. Mm -hmm. There's there's exceptions, but... Um, but I think there is some sort of link there with mm -hmm. the, at least with the sort of gusto and spirit of, of being a, especially a world traveling surfer. So if you've been out there tackling the world, you know, searching for waves and at a young age, you're definitely dealing with, uh, a lot of nuances and adversity and just, just things that are going to, you're going to be confronted with from, from traversing different cultures and, and climates and cuisines and, you know, just different dynamics, religious, political, you're just mm -hmm. thrust into it because you're passing through these places. And so you have to learn how to adapt and become resourceful. And, um, I think that's definitely good training for being a first responder. It's, it allows you to, uh, to, to be adaptable. Yes. But also you're dealing with you're going in the water elements, you know, it's, it's, it's risk. I think it's risky surfing. If you don't know what you're doing, you've got to be very alert. Um, you know, on the turns you're moving, I'm just saying this as a complete novice, but on the terms, your turns that you move and how to catch the wave and know when to go and all that. I just, I would imagine that's just listening to you saying that you, you know, you had this, I mean, it's, I didn't realize that you actually had that kind of the start of waves for water with you at the time when the earthquake happened. I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ, if that's not, a sign from upstairs that yeah all right you're doing waves for water you would have been pretty yeah thick <laughs> skin not to catch that sign because that's just incredible incredible it is um and it's you know i feel lucky in that way and a lot of people ask me they're like well how do i know how do i find my purpose and i'm like i, I i'm sorry like i'm the worst person to ask to be honest because it literally hit me over the head yeah. so hard yeah. it was so clear whereas if, if it's not that clear, how do you know? Like if I was choosing between starting the clothing brand or, or photography, I wasn't like super passionate about either of those. So how do I know which one is my purpose or is either one of them? You know, I don't know Yes, because it doesn't feel that strong. Whereas when I wanted to become a pro surfer or, or with waves for water, it was like a ton of bricks over your head. Just like, hello. <laughs> I started, I lost my mother and brother. Uh, my brother was down syndrome and I lost them within 13 months of each other. And that changed my trajectory and that changed my outlook on working in the fashion industry. I was a stylist and it became quite um, vacuous for me, egotistical, whatever, you know, self-serving, all the things that I, I don't want that. Um, 
And that's very much become my vocation. You actually said, do what you love and help uh, and help along the way, yeah. which I love that. It's I've never worked so hard in my life as I have on this, um, but I don't see it as um, I, it doesn't bother me the hours I put in it. I, I, I don't pay attention to that because I absolutely love it. And I imagine that you're the same. So I guess anyone listening that that's, that's when you know, I guess, your purpose is when it doesn't feel like it's a hard slog, like a nine to five job, and that you're deeply, deeply passionate about it and care. It also, absolutely. And it also, it's sort of a good indicator is when it's something like you don't know how to not do it. Yes, yes. It, there's no, there's not even any space within your brain that says, oh, maybe I'll do this tomorrow, or maybe I'll, it's like, 100% all in and it becomes such a laser focus when you feel mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and you're able to apply it. And as you said, it's, it, it, yeah, it's a lot of work. It's, it's mostly like a lot of hours. You're just putting in so many hours, but you're so passionate about it that it just feels like that's, you always feel like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Even in the, I even in the shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's been times when I've had a bit of a meltdown. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Oh my God, I can't do this. And then I think you are doing it yeah. and you're in it and just get on with it and shut up. Um, I love one thing that you said that um, waste water is scrappy because that really is us as well. We're very scrappy and gorilla and that um, sometimes you felt it's more like a running a drug cartel operation, um, which is something that... Um, and I, I'm not saying this lightly at all, but I've, um, I don't do drugs, but in the times when I've had a really dark moment of working the hours and, and I don't take a salary and, you know, we're trying to get, you know, we get fund, try to get funding and grants and all of that with any organization. There's been times when it's been very, very, very mentally challenging to keep going, but I'm so passionate and so blinkered with doing this that it's sometimes in the um in the past like in the early days i just thought wow is this what it's like to be an addict in some sense because i'm so addicted to doing this and there is no no that's you know we'll go around a different route to get to what we're trying to do um and this is something that i've known like publishing to some degree but for you to do a complete 360 career change and have some technical component attached to that the filter and be successful and you're now in 44 countries it's just incredible it's incredible thank you i i think uh in my opinion if you apply yourself in that all-in capacity so you're you're 110 in you will be successful mm -hmm. like I, I i think 10 10 times out of 10 i really believe that it may take you know i don't know what what the path looks like every time that might change but because so few people actually do apply themselves in that mm. in that level you know on that level and so i think that if you're like if you just stay the course and you really are all in and all your chips are in and you you essentially me uh, essentially all in for me is willing to take the risk yeah like you're truly risk taking you're really going out there and and going god there's a lot at stake here mm. and i'm in and when you do that you you make it happen you just do mm -hmm. it may take mm -hmm. time but i think you do and i think that if you don't then at some point you gave up 
mm-hmm. or, or, or maybe you were, you know, lost your passion for it. And that's totally fine too. But I don't think there's one, I think you could talk to all the people out there who are very successful, who have built something from nothing. And they would say, yeah, well, I was just, I was all in, I had the blinders on and I just was going, going, yes. going, sleepless yes. night, and it was all that kind of stuff. And then yeah. they achieved it. I would imagine that you're, um, you have a similar um, experience to me that I was very naive starting this and knew nothing yeah. and just went by the skin of my teeth still am and just working it out as we go. And I think that's probably would have been your strength, probably just going off and doing, I'm going to make this work. And I, and I guess because you went on, you were forced into a situation that was first responder, an emergency at, at, in Indonesia that you had to act, you had to act quickly and you saw what you were giving back. So incredibly powerful. Um, and you must get a lot of reward out of that from seeing the people that you help. Yeah. I mean, it's hugely fulfilling, obviously mm. it's a, there's, yeah. there's no way around that. It is so clearly, um, self-serving as much as, yes. as, as yes. it's selfless. It's very self-serving and, and I'm fine to say that like, it doesn't, uh, that's okay to me. I think it's fine to be, to be serving yourself at the same time of serving others. Um, I think that's actually the good, good formula to that's to, in a different context though, to in the fashion industry to say self-serving it has, it has a bit of a different <laughs> totally. And you medium. can psychoanalyze all that for a, yes. for a long time. But the, but the reality is, you know, it's like, how, how can you love somebody else if you don't love yourself? That kind of I- ideology. Um, but Barack Obama, I think said this quote where it was like every, it was just this in some article I read or something, uh, everybody's winging it. Just some people are better than others at winging it. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty interesting because in the beginning, starting waves for water, I'm sure you feel the same way with, with mission. Like you said, you know, you, you, this wasn't your wheelhouse and this wasn't my wheelhouse either. And I was totally winging it. And I think, um, most people are, and I don't care if you're, you're well-trained at something, you're still, once you start putting it into practice, there's new things you never thought of. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, it was a total shift in careers. Um, there was some crossover. I mean, there was some of uh, parallels in the sense that I was still out in new, new cultures and new, you know, the same as I was as a surfer. So that felt fairly comfortable, but like you said, you know, I'm, I'm implementing, new technologies, learning about those. And I think one of the things that really helped me was I wasn't from the traditional trajectory of a humanitarian or aid worker. I didn't, Mm -hmm. I wasn't from that. I came from total left field place. You know, most of the other people I was working with or that I came in contact with, you know, came through those traditional channels. So it was studying some sort of degree in that space and then maybe working for the Peace Corps and then, you know, and then working for mm-hmm. another agency and going through that normal pathway. Um, I was a pro surfer. So I, I, I think it really helped me because I, I really thought outside the box when it came mm-hmm. to these as all, all aid work is and development work, you know, first, res, first responder work, it's all problem solving. That's all it really yes. is. You know, it's just, just a series of problems, some very huge and some, you know, small and immediate. Um, but it's all problem solving. And I think to be able to come at it with a really fresh mind, not, not from this traditional structure of this is how you do it, mm-hmm. um, really helped me because I did, I just thought outside the box yeah. and, and I, and in some cases it totally failed, but in some cases it was, uh, hugely successful 
and propelled the progress of the organization. Did you find that if there was a problem or something, it's it's not going to happen or we can't do it? It's like, okay, we've got this. Let's just, it's almost like you steamrolled through everything. It's like, I've got to get this done. I've got to fix it. And we're going to work it out because there is no rule book and I haven't been taught a rule book. And we're just going to make it work. It just feels like that, that there was no, it wasn't not possible to you. It was going to happen. Absolutely. And, the, and, and there, there is some sort of, in the traditional sense, there is some sort of a guide guideline slash rule book with the way this stuff is supposed to go. And I was still operating within those cones, but definitely pushing the envelope a little bit and, and coming outside and, and, and also really taking the stance of the student as opposed to the teacher, because I was a student at that time. So what that meant was, look, I know my role. I have these, I have these technologies there's a need for them and i need to figure what i need to figure out is how to implement them in a way that it, that i get maximum reception i get I, they are used to their full potential and there's a bunch of space within that you know like are you going to reach that potential or are you going to if you fail you still did good but you maybe somebody isn't going to reach that potential in using that technology so what I would do is listen to my my allies on the ground, my local advocates, my different guys and gals that I that I would hire to come in and like, you know, from certain communities, I'd, I'd hire them for the day at that point or whatever, just like help me translate or help me, you know, implement certain things. And I remember there was this one time there was a 50,000 person IDP camp, a displaced persons camp right after the earthquake in Haiti. Um, that we were, I was part of a group that was helping to manage the, the, the services for that camp. So water, sanitation, food, all this kind of stuff. And, um, it's overwhelming as you can imagine as 50,000 people, mm-hmm. um, the, the water was being mostly, uh, m- mostly provided through, uh, water trucks that would come in and fill these giant sort of military bladders that would sit there. And then there was, there was faucets that came out of the bladder. So people could come fill up. Um, the water was questionable in terms of, was it fully treated? It was coming from a like Haitian municipality. And, um, the general consensus was that that water still needed to be filtered, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so it was good. There was, there was this big water source, but it still needed this, um, you know, just to, to, to ensure it was safe to drink. It needed some more treating. Um, so we had these portable water filters. There was one, we were working section by section to, to, to bang out like, you know, a certain number of population of that tent of that camp. And there was one section that had about 6,000 people or something like that. And I had like a hundred filters with the batch that I still had. And I, and I, I sat there for two weeks trying to figure out how to implement those fairly. You know, I just didn't, as much experience in the world I had, or as much common sense as I had, just wasn't enough. Like I just couldn't come to that conclusion. How do I implement these in a way that's fair? There's 6,000, there's just a shortage of the solution. And and how is this going to be fair? And, um, there was a pastor. I noticed there was this, this pastor that was doing these, there was no real governing body of the camp. There was no real leader. Um, it was kind of managed by these sections, uh, almost like neighborhoods. And um, it was pretty chaotic, but there was one unifying force. And it was this pastor who would do these sermons. He built this makeshift stage and would do these sermons 
at 5 p.m. every day. And a huge percentage of the 50,000 person population of that camp would go to a high point in that camp and watch these sermons. And specifically this one 6,000 person uh, section that we were actually trying to work on at that time, that was actually fairly close to the stage. And um, I talked to him and I said, Hey, this is my challenge right now. This is my sort of conundrum. I don't know. This, I have these solutions. And he goes, Oh no, I got it. No worries. And I'm just like, what? Wait, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for two weeks. How do, how do, what do you mean? And I, and I also didn't trust him fully. I was like, what do you mean? Like mm -hmm. you just have it. And he, and I go tell me, and he goes, come to my sermon today and you'll see. And I'm like, okay, this is a total leap of faith at this point, because what if he's, what if he's got some idea that I don't agree with and, and that, that it ultimately will hurt the whole situation. Um, but then I also just had to trust my gut and just say, well, I'm already at a, at a standstill as, as we speak. So, okay, I'll just trust him. So I go to this, I go to the sermon and he, right at the end, he goes, Oh, and I wanted to also mention, you know, I met this guy today and he's got these water filters and, um, we're going to help D 43 or whatever that section, the, the specific section. So he was speaking all of a sudden specifically to them as opposed to the whole, whole crowd. Um, and they were cool with that because he would every, every day he kind of speak to a different one. So this was their turn. Um, and he goes, I know there's, you know, thousands of you and there's only a hundred of these filters, but every single pregnant woman gets one. And it was just oh. immediately solved. Wow. Not only was everybody cool with it, they were cheering and you know, proud that that was, you know, it was just, it made so much sense. And I was just like, of course, that is genius. Like everyone, whether or not they're getting, they're actually going to benefit from it or not is happy to know that, you know, someone in their group who, who is pregnant is going to be taken care of. And of course that pregnant woman can actually help uh, fan that out um, once she's taken care of herself and, you know, provide water for other people. And it just, solved it in, in a matter of seconds. And, it, and so it was those type of lessons. And, and to be honest, I still, I still have experiences like that, but especially at that early stage when I was so green and understanding how these kind of dynamics work, it was, it, I think it's really refreshing to be able to have that type of experience and then apply that moving forward, as mm -hmm. opposed to coming in with this structured point of view that you learn from this traditional um, education and coming in saying, okay, this is how we're doing it and sort of dictate dictating. Whereas I was listening and leaning on these local experts <laughs> and, and then applying their, their ideas. You couldn't see that, but the hairs on my arms stood up yeah. when you were telling that, that, cause I could just imagine you in this outside kind of setting you, with yeah. a community around. It is the most obvious thing to think of, but you don't think of that because you want to help everybody. Yeah. It, it, it believe me, and now I'm always paying attention of the pregnant, the pregnant women, just because it's such an obvious like starting point. Are you, do you ever find that any of the communities you go in that you've you've kind of been pushed back and they're not as open and not as receptive <laughs> to having the filters or, or having you teach them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there's ways to work around that because what it really comes down to is just building trust and mm. and and I think the way we approach it, especially because the color of my skin, to be honest, like in a lot of these places, what I represent 
is broken trust. Yes. I start off with them already having traumatic experiences with people like me, Mm -hmm. um, with, with this trust being broken. So I not only have to build it, I have to like repair it first, then build it. Um, and I think the way, the way that we've approached it, the best way is to come in and be super honest and say, look, I don't expect you to trust me. I wouldn't trust me either. Mm-mm. And I'm not asking you to trust me, but hopefully through this process, if I can at least get your, if you can commit to this short amount of time with me initially and my team who is, is almost entirely made up of local people that they've known their whole life, hopefully through that process, you will trust the technology. And then if we become friends later, that's a bonus. Yes. So yes. there's a, there's a really intentional approach to yes to doing it that way, as opposed to coming in and being like the salesman <laughs> um, and like, no, trust me. It's awesome. I wouldn't trust me. Yes. I, 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 I don't know you, you know, I, it's like, if, if you walked in, I'd be like, yeah, cool. sounds great. But I don't know you. I, I why, why do I automatically yes. trust you? Um, and then you've got all the layers and nuances of, you know, um, oppression and racism and just all of these uh, privilege versus non-privilege and all this stuff you have, these barriers you have to work through. Have you, has, um, as Ways for Water, has it, has it grown and developed how you hoped it would? Like has it evolved how you thought or you saw it would? Yeah. Yeah, it has. Absolutely. I kind of have this idea of it being this decentralized, autonomous, you know, the different global factions that were global offices, so to speak, are these autonomous um, entities that that really operate the way they want to operate as long as it's within with the same overarching fundamental uh, belief, which is and, and sort of purpose. Yes. Which is providing access to clean water. <laughs> Um, we do that through rainwater harvesting, through wells, through filtration. You know, it's there's a number of solutions. It depends on the need, but that that model, as a as opposed to this very top down coming from global headquarters, which is in the U.S., and saying, okay, hey, Nepal in the Philippines, you both do it like this, and I don't think that's the right approach mm-hmm. because they're totally different countries. Yes, and totally totally different cultures, and and what works over here doesn't necessarily work over here. So, um, going so far as to say, not only in the way that they operate, but also in the way that they exist and the way that they, they, from a fiscal standpoint, like, like, you know, maybe the Philippines and, and Nepal and, and Wedgewater, India and Wedgewater, Mexico can all become totally self-sustaining, um, because they have built, you know, they're, they're their own organization. It's, it's waves for water, but it's, it's waves for water. Mexico is totally different than waves for water. India. It's different than it having it just be a country office. It's sort of like, look, this is totally built on the foundation and the fabric of this culture. And, um, and it's run entirely by locals and it is, you know, the funding comes almost entirely from that, that place as well. And that's starting to happen. So that's incredible. You're starting like a circular economy and going yeah. into these countries and, and educating them. And, and then up to you guys, I'm leaving you with the tools and the, 
the kind of the rule book of what to do and then leaving them to it. And I guess yeah. that's where that trust comes in. And then they can develop that further within the country. That's brilliant. Well, and they all do it differently. I mean, they all, yeah. they all like approach it differently because it, it calls for that. You know, the, the, the people in India, the culture in India is so different than the Philippines or so different than uh, Mexico. So they're going to approach it differently. And, and I could go over there and watch and be like, I wouldn't do it that way. And then I realized, Oh, well, I'm not here. Like, it's yeah. not my choice. This, I wouldn't do it this way because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I would actually, if I was doing it the way I, I instinctively think I would probably be doing it wrong and then have to course correct later because I would learn the hard way versus giving them truly empowering them to, to make those decisions early on. Um, there's, there's a lot of oversight and it's all obviously in the beginning. And there's a lot of investment on my part. Like I invested in these country offices. We have six of them. And I mean, financially, emotionally, mentally, everything I've invested in, into the, into building these teams and supporting them so that they can get to that, that point of self-sustaining being a self-sustaining entity. And that's, that's the investment I was willing to make. I think, I think it's seven and a half million people you've helped. No, uh, it's, it's, um, is it around four, four million? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's still huge. It's still a million. It's still in the millions. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Glo- I mean, well, that's a very conservative number, to be honest. It's, uh, I, I like to speak about numbers from a very conservative place where, you know, I could, if, I can stand firmly on, on that, but the truth is it's probably greater. Um, cause there's, when we do our monitoring and evaluating, which is our, our follow-up, it's our, our impact tracking part of our programming, which is going back to the households, you know, six months, a year and a half, three years later. Um, and doing these surveys, we don't, you do a percentage of those households that you implemented to. So you don't do a hundred percent of them. You do 30% and you, and that, that represents the larger amount, you know, there, there, in a lot of cases, there's just more, there's just more there than we, than we anticipate. That's more. so impressive. It's so impressive when you think about how it found you and how you got onto starting ways for water. And now you've got 4 million people that you've given clean drinking access water to in their community and educated them and given them the tools to carry that forward to the next generation. That is just, it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. There's something really cool about, so there's the impact you're making on the ground. Um, you know, those, those recipients of the program, the people that didn't have access to clean water one day. And then after you came and implemented the program, they do. So there's this, there's this total shift and their life is changed forever, really, because you change the, the conditions and then there's a new trajectory for them. Um, so there's that obvious one. The other one is the impact that it's having on the implementers themselves. Mm-hmm. So our country director in the Philippines is a woman named Jenica Dizon. Um, she started working initially as a volunteer uh, and early on when we first started that office and she's just a rock star, she was always going to succeed, but she, she was so inspired by it, um, that she ended up getting a scholarship. She wanted to take it further, a scholarship, uh, I believe in hydrology, um, her, her she got, ended up getting her master's, uh, from, an, from, an, um, 
uh, school in the UK. She got that scholarship because she was working at Waster Water. So that, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Then she gets her master's. And so she's definitely well, way more well-versed than I am (laughs) in the topic at this point. And, and then she comes back and is now the country director of the organization in the Philippines and is just an absolute rock star. Like, so there's this full circle and it all is a result of the organization itself. You keep making the hairs on my arms stand up. Yeah. It's so cool. That's incredible. Yeah. So you don't think about the impact on the actual implementers. You know, you're always thinking about the impact on the ground, which is great. Um, but, but the people actually doing the work also, it changes them. But it's, it's having that knock on effect. It changes, it changed you mm-hmm. and it's changing you when you go and see, um, the results of your hard labor of giving clean water to a community. So she's also doing the same. Yeah. And that's as powerful, but that, what an incredible woman though, to think, Oh, how can I help more? I really want to know about this. I'm really going to get into it and know, kind of study this in depth and not go off somewhere else, but be loyal and come back to you and be backed away to her, you know, her country. She could have gone anywhere, I guess, with that degree. Yeah. Well, and she's, she's absolutely killing it. I mean, the wave, the waves water Philippines office did as much uh, work as the global headquarters did this year. Wow. I mean, she's on CNN every other day. Like no way. My yeah, gosh. She's just a complete rock star. Um, and it's such a cool feeling for me um, to see that and to have that investment pay off mm-hmm. where I was paying their salaries for a long time. I was paying their, you know, I was doing whatever I could to, to invest in these, these new offices and, but, but still giving them the trust and control to build it the way they wanted to, because I think they know better than I do. And then to see it pay off in that way is just hugely fulfilling. It's such a different, I can't, I'm trying to wrap my head around you as a surfer doing like your pro surfing and, and all the tools that you do now for, to waves for water, um, where the connection is and where the tie over, um, when I, when I was a fashion editor, I remember when I first had the idea to do missions, someone said to me, um, a very close friend of mine said to me, what makes you so sure you, you're, you're, um, you're, you're equipped to do this? You, you know, you can't do this. And I went, well, what do I need to do this? I just need passion and drive, surely. Because then I'll learn as I'm going along. And I do learn the whole time. But it's, it's great that you have, that you're open and teaching kind of the people in the different communities, because it's almost like you've got a little school as well, because you're helping them and showing them stuff and letting them go off and, and educate themselves on it and bring it back home for them. She sounds incredible, this woman. She is. You should interview her. She's so well-spoken and just so, so good at this. But that also comes back to you of what you've built and your morals and your integrity of what you're doing. You know, that's back to the trust element of saying, I'm going to show you something to do. And if, if we become friends along the way and there's a trust and that's an added bonus. So that's, yeah, you know, they wouldn't stick, I would think, you know, with you and doing this if it wasn't, if they didn't respect you and think what you're bringing and doing for them and, and their people is so powerful. Yeah. You know, and the truth of the matter is all the, 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 all the different country offices and even our global HQ, there's been very few people who have left. Mm. In in some cases, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I had to let people go because that's yes. just the way it went. But there's been very few people, if if any, who have actually like decided, okay, I want to leave now. <laughs> um, and that's just 
I, I'm not going to take credit for that. I'm going to, I think it's just the nature of the work itself is so rewarding. And, um, but there's, there's something there for sure. Well, it's also seen the power of the give back, isn't it? Giving it back to, to helping someone, another human having something that a lot of people just have at the turn of a tap, at a turn of a motion, you've got clean water. It's something that's overlooked, you know, many households. So it's very powerful. I think to go to somewhere to help someone, it's it's very um, selfless. It takes a certain type of person to um, you. You have to like problem solving, mm. you know that, and, and not everybody does. I, I totally understand that. You know, some people want to just take the path of least resistance, and that's just the way they are. And and in this case, you have to want the harder path. Mm. You know, it's going to be a challenge every single day. If you do like that stuff, it's perfect for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that's like, you just really think of surfing then, because I'm sure that was challenging every day when you were learning to surf. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also just the dedication it takes to, you know, this sort of unwavering, you know, you get beat down over yeah. and over and over, but you stand back up kind of mentality. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. It's, it sounds like a similar mindset that you've got. Um, um, there's a discipline. Yeah. yeah. To that, that carries over into to what you're doing now. And also just being able to handle pressure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Cause there's a lot at stake, you know, with this, there's at the end of the day, really there's people's lives at stake. Yeah. Um, not, not to sensationalize or drama, dramatize this, but, but, um, if you want to, but you're making decisions multiple times a day that will affect somebody's life. Yes. Um, and that's something that you, you can't give too much, uh, value and power too. You, you just can't because it'll cripple you, mm. um, paralyze you, but, but it's, it's there for sure. Thank you for always listening to these amazing people's stories. Our next guest is really quite remarkable. She's someone I met at the inception of mission when she was the chief executive officer of Barney's New York. And whilst in that post, she successfully launched the Barney's New York foundation. She then went on to become Tiffany's Chief Brand Officer and is now the CEO of North America, Salvatore Ferragamo. Pretty impressive, isn't it? We talk about her career trajectory and how focused she's been knowing exactly what path she's wanted to follow, but also how she is passing down her knowledge on what she's learned along the way to her younger female colleagues. Please tune in and listen to my next guest, Daniela Vitale.